Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to this episode of Tatter. Tatter is largely recorded and edited in the digital media studios at Bates College, access to which is something I am very grateful for. But I do want to say that the views expressed in each episode of Tatter are in no way official views of Bates College. With all that said, here's Tatter. If you go to fairpunishment.org, at least as of today, you'll see the following, and here I quote, Too often in the U.S. justice system, sentences are too severe for the weight of the crime or are handed down to individuals who suffer from crippling impairments that diminish their culpability. The Fair Punishment Project illuminates excessive punishments and the systemic problems that create them, end quote. Today's guest on Tatter, Josie Duffy Rice, is an attorney who works at the Fair Punishment Project. She took the time to talk with me about criminal justice reform, and we also spoke about one of the New York Times' newest columnists, Michelle Alexander, and we talked about prosecutors, including progressive prosecutors, and race and criminal justice. I want to share that conversation in this episode of Tatter, which is titled, The Story is Not Enough. The Fair Punishment Project is an organization that focuses on criminal justice reform. Um, most of our work is it deals with sort of the middle time period of the criminal process. So not the policing side and not the prison side, but the prosecutor, um, the prosecutor period. And we are kind of jack of all trades. We um, some communications work around narrative narrative. Um, and messaging. We do a ton of policy work for um, other organizations and um, creating uh, model policies for a prosecutor and other people in the system. We have a website called The Appeal, which is our journalism, um, kind of our associated journalism wing. They're not actually part of the Fair Punishment Project um, technically, but we're all sort of um, in the same umbrella. Um, and the appeal also kind of focuses big picture, I'm sorry, big, um, big product journalism on prosecutors and other aspects of the criminal justice system that are sort of underreported. The theory behind the Fair Punishment Project is basically that a lot of people care about criminal justice reform. Um, you know, mass incarceration is a buzzword. It's yeah. something that people that matters to people that they understand, you know, at least a certain sector of America, not, not enough people, but there, there are people who understand that there's a problem. They don't always know what the problem is. And so we're trying to draw attention to the, to the, to the less known problems, right? Not innocence or private prisons, but what else is happening that is really driving the mass incarceration crisis in this country. So, one of my guests uh, from a previous episode was John Pfaff. Uh, who's Love written... John Pfaff. Fan. <laughs> I'm a fan as well. Uh, so um, one of the things that came through clearly in that uh, interview and that comes through in his book is that what he calls the standard story, which uh, Michelle Alexander and the new Jim Crow has popularized that the, the standard story uh, emphasizes private prisons. It emphasizes uh, federal policy, especially uh, mandatory minimum sentencing, 
Uh, but that the standard story, uh, as, and that's his term for it, it's not that those factors don't matter, but it's that that's, they don't matter as much as other factors, such as the, the impact of, uh, county, uh, prosecutors. I wonder if that standard story, if you find it unhelpful, given that it directs people's attention away from uh, the perhaps rather um, uh, pedestrian but still important or potent role that prosecutors play, is it unhelpful to, to focus on those issues that Alexander and others are emphasizing? Michelle Alexander changed an entire field of Um, or really just the entire landscape of how people thought about the criminal justice system. And she really associated um, these kind of past histories of social control, especially social control of black and brown people to mass incarceration. The work that she's done has been, I mean, has been just invaluable. There are no, there are no, there's no measurement to really express how important it has been. And the fact that what people took from that is that the drug, that drugs are driving most of the, um, most of the admissions to prison or that most people in prison are in prison for drugs is unfortunate. I wouldn't say on its face um, it, it, it has done more harm than good. Yep. Um, and I would say the same things about mandatory minimums and sort of these other, what I would describe as red herrings, which really they are misleading, but they do embody something. They do get to the heart of this, right? Which is um, we put people in prison arbitrarily for extremely long amounts of time. And though the story is more complicated than many people seem to think that it is, having a baseline, a foundation of sympathy and empathy that people have for the incarcerated is really key because you can get the story right about the system, but that if people actually don't care about yeah. the people in these prisons, then it doesn't matter, right? And so while while there have been some downsides to the misconceptions that people have, um, I think overall it has been really beneficial to set a foundation of, of, of understanding the system is arbitrary. Yeah. And at the various ways it's arbitrary, there might be misconceptions about that, but understanding at baseline that it is arbitrary is key. So what are the most important reforms that you would like to see? Oh, man, that's a big question. <laughs> um, you know, th- here's what I'll say. I, I'm not sure that it's, it's way easier to identify the problems than identify the solutions. Yeah. And part of that is because this is a very, very complicated and intricate system yep. that has many parts. It has many moving um, it has many moving roles, it has many moving, um, you know, institutions. There are countless variables. The laws matter. The people in office matter. Um, you know, the, the whatever day it is, that day at the court matters. You know, the municipal budget matters. There are all these kind of, you know, the media matters. And so there are all these things that interact that create this system. And, and to identify any one reform, I think, um, I, I think it's just tough. What I will say is that, and again, this is, 
I have my own caveats even saying this, right? But one thing I think is really critical in the system that it's lacking is transparency. Uh-huh. And so what I mean by that is really understanding what a DA has done all day, who, what, you know, what plea deals were offered, what plea, what plea deals were taken, how long someone is sitting in jail because they can't pay bail, how many people have they prosecuted for X this year, how many, you know, what are the racial disparities, what are the funding concerns. I mean, all of this is just information that we really don't have, a lot of it, and that creates um, a dynamic of we don't know what we don't know, right? We just don't know what the problem is if we don't know what the data says. And so it's definitely not a solution to be transparent because they can be just as bad and transparent. Um, But it's a starting point for us to really be able to identify the problem um, as they exist. So on that note, uh, could you talk briefly about who Kim Fox is and what she did recently that's noteworthy? Yeah, so Kim Fox is... Um, the state's attorney, so the head prosecutor in Cook County, uh, Illinois, which is, I think, the second biggest county in America, perhaps the third, um, and is uh, where Chicago is, so Chicago and sort of the surrounding areas. Um, Cook County has always been famous. Chicago police have always been famous for being particularly brutal, right? The Cook County Jail is, I'm pretty sure the large, I used to know this stuff, but I'm pretty sure I'm correct that it's the largest one in the nation. Um, if it's not the largest, it's one of the, you know, top few largest jails in America. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we hear everybody from the president to the former president talk about violence in Chicago. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's like a, it is kind of this, you talk about South side of Chicago and it's a trigger to talk about, crime and violence and, you know, black men need to get it together. You know, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot there. Kim Fox was elected um, after Anita Alvarez or in, in a primary against Anita Alvarez, who was a former state's attorney. Anita Alvarez was terrible for many reasons. She became probably her most famous for um, not prosecuting uh, or, or, or waiting to prosecute a um, police officer um, who shot a, black child he was i think 16 or 17 in the back 17 times um wow. and it wasn't until his name was laquan mcdonald and it wasn't until anita alvarez kind of became aware of the fact that this was going to be made public that she kind of you know she said okay you know we'll bring charges or and that was like a year after it had happened so anyway kim fox ran as an outsider at the time she was she ran as the most progressive district attorney candidate I've ever seen. And I, you know, know a lot of these candidates. Um, She, there, now she has some competition, right? Larry Krasner might inch her out a little bit. Larry Krasner is the newly elected DA in Philadelphia and reputedly quite progressive. She, in general, is one of the more progressive district attorney candidates. And what she did in, I think, February was release just a an immense amount of data. And I think it was about 35 to 40,000 cases and it was a ton of data points. So including, you know, including the raw data. Exactly. Including the raw data. So 
um, you know, if you are interested in this, you can go on there and really you can follow each defendant through their different cases. You can, you know, I, I think it gives them it's ge- geographic data and um, it just is a very, very um, thorough data set. It's amazing and it's unprecedented. I don't think anybody has ever in a prosecutor's office released that much data publicly that um, that willingly and yeah. and and naturally there were people who really pushed for this. It wasn't as if, you know, it wasn't as if it happened effortlessly. Um, the, the downside to that is Cook uh, County sees about 400 to 500,000 cases a year, I think. Wow. Um, and that was 35,000 cases. Yeah. The rest of, it was most of the felonies. I don't think it was all of them. I think it was most of them. Um, but either way, the, the point is that there are, you know, a gazillion misdemeanor cases that aren't included in that data. And the reason for that, my understanding is that that data is with the court, not with the state's attorney's office. And so they couldn't release it all, right? They, they don't actually have control over that. It's just another example of how saying I want to be transparent is really, really difficult um, if you work in a system with antiquated software, with a lot yeah. of bureaucracy, with a lot of people keeping different tabs on different data points and measuring things differently. And it's, it's not as easy as just saying, I want to be transparent. So you mentioned a couple of minutes ago, another uh, district attorney who's recently been elected, who is more progressive than the typical uh, county DA. Yeah. And that's uh uh, Larry Krasner and Larry Krasner um, was recently covered in an article at uh, by Sean King at the Intercept, which was one of a number of articles to uh, share a five uh, a five page document uh, that uh, Krasner uh, produced, which was essentially an internal memo to his assistant uh, DAs giving them guidance. And one of the things that was laid out as a I don't know if, poli- if it rises to the level of policy, but certainly one directive in the document was for the assistant DAs to go on the record in court regarding the costs of incarceration. Mm-hmm. So, for example, mm-hmm. noting that each year of unnecessary incarceration costs the state approximately the same as hiring a new firefighter, police officer, teacher, or addiction counselor, and more than the right. average family income uh, in Philadelphia. I wonder... If you would bet that offering that sort of information in open court will, for those people who hear about it or read about it, will it help temper punitive responses that might otherwise prevail in the public? Or are you skeptical that it's going to have that impact? I think that it is a useful thing to provide. Yep. Um, I think it's useful information. I think that it's kind of complicated, right? Because if, if you, if that person doesn't go to jail, you're not actually necessarily saving that money. You know, anytime you see a cost analysis of incarceration, it's to me slightly misleading because, and I, I don't mean he's being misleading. I just mean the way people interpret it um, is not exactly what it, what we would think. And by that, I mean, um, by that, I mean that like if, if, you know, if you remove one student from a classroom, you're not saving. When, when they calculate the cost per student, 
they calculate the real estate and, you know, the cost of the teacher's salary to teach them. But removing one student, you don't, you don't pay the teacher slightly less or get rid of a couple square feet into in a. So basically, that money just kind of ends up spread among, you know, spread among the other people in there. So, so I always am a little wary of cost numbers. I don't know if I explain that very well, but that um, that that's just my immediate interpretation. Yeah. I do think to what you're saying that like it does make people think, is this worth it? And it's really difficult to get people to think that way because of how we think about risk as a, as a, as a society. Right. Yeah. And so we've just been taught to, to kind of eliminate all risk. Right. Right. So, you know, what can you, you know, what on, if it'll make us safer, we need to do it, whatever quote unquote safer means. And we have not thought about what, what the state does as to making us unsafe. Yeah. So, you know, we don't think we, we've, we've just been taught by our politicians and by um, pop culture and, you know, by Willie, the Willie Horton, you know, these, these kind of like major um, moments in, in how we think about crime and criminal justice to think, if it's going to keep us at all safer, we should lock this guy up. The truth is, like, we could be a society with zero crime. You know, North Korea has very little crime, <laughs> right? And so we don't think about risk on the other end. We don't think about um, the cost on the other end. And to sort of say, like, this is what it costs the state, I think it's really, really valuable. I think it only goes so far. What, what will be the test for Larry Kasner is it's very possible right? That you don't ask for bail for someone who committed a very low level crime and then they go out and do something worse. That's yep. possible. Yep. Humans are humans. There are millions of people in Philadelphia. Like it could happen, right? This is, this is, this could happen. And what the test becomes then is how do we talk about the fact that a bad thing happened and try to prevent it if we can, but not rely on our criminal justice system to do all the prevention um, because the truth is just that people, it's not Larry Krasner's job to eliminate all risk, right? Yep. That's not his job. His job is to try to protect as far as he can reasonably without infringing on the, you know, infringing inappropriately on the rights of the people around him. Right. And so how do we re um, how do we make people rethink what it means to respond to crime in a way that is productive and not purely punitive? I wonder if you and actually before I go to that question, um, I love your Twitter feed, and for all listeners, oh, if, if they're not following uh, Josie Duffy Rice on Twitter, they should be. Um, and um, here I'm actually going to refer to a retweet, uh, but your original tweets are also great. But here's a retweet of Adam uh, Goodell, and the, the quote is, uh, the mayor from Jaws is still the mayor in Jaws 2. Uh, it is so important to vote in your local elections. And, I really loved that. That was great. No, it's it's great, and and it obviously, 
it's important for people to vote in the elections for their local uh, district attorney, uh, given how much impact, how much, how much discretion those prosecutors have. I wonder if you have any thoughts on how more progressive prosecutors like Krasner and Fox can be elected, especially given one of the challenges that I first was introduced to by John Pfaff, which is that the prosecutors elected typically by the county and in many counties like Cook County, suburban residents wield disproportionate influence over the electoral outcomes relative to those in the urban core. But, but the benefits and costs of a tough on crime prosecutorial approach are not evenly distributed. People in the suburbs who come into Chicago on the weekend and feel safer uh, as a result of, uh, I don't know if you could see my air quotes there, feel safer as a consequence of uh, a, a more um, um, punitive prosecutorial style may feel that they're getting the benefits, but it's not their brother, not their son, not their father, um, who is not their not their sister, not their daughter, who is likely to experience the costs um, uh, of, of of more uh, punitive enforcement. And but still, there's going to be an incentive for the prosecutor to be punitive if they cater to the people who are coming in from the suburbs and wielding disproportionate influence. In such a context, what can be done to facilitate the election of less punitive prosecutors in the Krasner uh, style? Yeah, so you're hitting on a on a really important dynamic, and I would say just a couple of things. One is that. But one of the reasons that we as a society are kind of like the word I would use would be like obsessed, but kind of fixated on random crime, right? Is because random crime is rare. It doesn't mean it never happens. It doesn't mean that something terrible can't happen. And I don't mean to downplay it when it does happen. I just mean statistically in most places in America and especially most suburbs, you could leave your kid outside and your valuables and nobody's going to take them. Yep. It's just, it's just not how, crime functions. And that's a result of income inequality. That's a result yep. of um, segregation. That is a result of just, a, you know, urban sprawl, all of these kind of dynamics that f- together function to mean that what you're experiencing on place A in a county is just totally different than what's being experienced in place D and or B. I don't know why I said D. We talked that tough on crime about cracking down. And yet you can see that like, it is in the neighborhoods with the most cops and the most stop and frisk and the most arrests and the longest prison sentences and the most police brutality where if crime still occurs and not usually to the extent that it characterizes occurring, not, um, but it's true that in, you know, in some places where there's a heavy police presence, there's also more crime than there is in a place where there's almost um, no no need for a police presence and no crime. Um, And the other dynamic here is race, which is that prosecutors tend to be elected on the county level um, and county counties tend to be whiter. I think 90% of counties in America are drawn to be majority white. It might be that that dynamic, that that statistic is outdated, but it's, it's very newly outdated. If it is, you know, within the past, six months or so. Um, And that means that white majorities are controlling what happens to black communities. Um, 
and brown communities. And that perpetuates this mass incarceration system. I think what we hope to see is a conversation about what what works and what we risk and what we what we lose by the systems that don't work. Yeah. And I also hope we see and, and I think that this actually works better among people who maybe aren't um, aren't big on criminal justice reform, but are big on, um, you know, integrity and government, you see a lot in prosecutors' offices of, of complete avoidance of any willingness to be held accountable. That means, you know, being honest about data. That means holding your ADAs accountable. That means thinking about race and thinking about income. It means holding cops accountable it means it there, there are so many levels to what we think about when we think about accountability but my 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 feeling is that most people any political spectrum any class any race any age don't like it when they feel like they're the elected officials um that they've put into office are not being fair and square with them and i think highlighting when that happens Highlighting the people who say they're tough on crime and recognizing that they're only tough on crime in certain certain instances, and then other times they will, would want to let crime go. I mean, you can see it in our own president right now, right? right. Ran on a tough on crime platform and is on the internet every day complaining right. <laughs> that um, people are investigating crime because it's his people um, that are, you know, have their backs against the wall. Um, so I... I hope that um, that people who are less affected by this system will listen to the people who are more affected by it and find out what, what they want. That's it for Tatter. I want to thank Josie Duffy Rice for taking the time to talk with me, and I want to wish her the best of luck in all of her work. To learn more about the Fair Punishment Project, go to tatter.fireside.fm and you will see a link to the organization's website as well as a link to Josie's Twitter feed. Be sure to also follow Tatter on Twitter. That's at Tatter underscore rags. And if you appreciate Tatter as well as the work I put in to make it happen, you can effectively buy me a beer or buy me a cup of coffee by supporting Tatter on Patreon. Yay, crowdfunding. If you do that, you will also get access to exclusive content not available elsewhere and only available to patrons. So, for example, there is an extended recording of me at a gun range firing the AR-15, and I promise it was for research for a previous episode. But in addition to that, I am planning the first of a series of non-policy-related interviews that will only be available to patrons there. Don't worry, the policy and political interviews will still live here for free, but becoming a patron will get you access to the other content. For more information, go to patreon.com slash tatter. For now, thanks for listening to this episode, and be well. <laughs>